Hello and welcome to Belong's podcast on building inclusive societies. Conversations on caste and SDG 16. Goal 16 is dedicated to the promotion of peaceful and inclusive societies, the provision of access to justice for all, and building accountable institutions. I'm your host Muda Tarik and together in this series through conversations with academics, activists and advocates we look into how the debilitating institution of caste remains a great threat to sustainable development we will unpack caste politics and its problematic enmeshment with our democratic social legal and educational systems and try to understand how caste is a deterrent to the goals of social justice tune in to know more today we have with us professor samina dalwai who is a professor of law at the jindal global law school In this episode we will discuss how caste manifests in classrooms curriculums and pedagogies with a special reference to legal education we will look into how caste and other axes of marginalization can be integrated into the classroom teaching so as to ensure young lawyers are conscious of the sociological context they operate in Stay tuned to learn about interesting ways of incorporating caste awareness into legal education. Welcome to the podcast Professor Dalwai. It's very nice to have you here. Let me jump to my questions straight away. Could you tell us a bit about yourself, your educational professional background and research interests? What stems your interest in understanding caste and how do you approach it? I was born and brought up in Bombay within a family of socialist workers activists my grandmother nalini pandit was a marxist gandhian scholar and she worked on caste in her time in fact she was a brahmin lady working writing on caste before the generation of dalit writers came about in the 60s and 70s to write about their own lives so she stated that caste along with class should be base not superstructure in marxian thought while understanding india so that is the background when i was looking at my phd topic which was uh, the dance bar ban in 2005 feminists had deeply looked into the ban as a feminist issue they wondered why erotic labor is being banned is it the sexuality of lower caste women is it the labor and livelihood of women etc but no one actually paid a nuanced attention to caste so i started looking at caste and gender as an intersection that views erotic labor of bar girls in the dance bars i did my phd in the next 4 years and i came up with a thesis that it is not the erotic labor or it is not the sexuality of women but it is the value of labor that is ordained in caste system that comes to be shaken by the new market of dance bars so women who were lower caste and poor should have earned a certain kind of money and they are constantly compared to domestic workers or women who make papads and achars and they should be earning that level to the popular or mainstream discourse and the comparison of their incomes to the lower other lower strata women's income is constantly done in the dance bar debate so that means that they are earning too much 
And this came up again and again that they are earning too much money. Nobody asks a teacher, uh, me as a professor, that I'm earning too much money. Nobody asks a pilot that he's earning too much money. Nobody even says it to an air hostess that she's earning too much money. So what is it about these women and their dancing that elicits this kind of discussion that there is too much money? Then I thought it is lower caste and women and their money. So it's the caste system that decides the value of each person's money and value of each person's labor. And if somebody or some profession tends to give them more, then it becomes a problem. I published this book two years back and that has been received quite well that this was a new thesis in caste and gender and law. So that's how basically I got drawn into this. Thank you for that, Professor. How do you think caste ensures institutional humiliation? I have been following some of these Dalit students' suicides cases. If we take three cases in which there were these tragic incidents of suicide, Rohit Vemula in Hyderabad, Payal Tadvi in Maharashtra, and Delta in Madhya Pradesh, we will see because of their caste, they were humiliated, insulted and uh, trodden upon to such an extent that they lost their spirit. These are people who were actually extraordinary in our society. They came from a very disadvantaged background, poor and beaten down in many ways and still made a mark on education. So Rohit Vemula was a PhD student in sciences, while that we had already become a doctor. And Delta was a 17-year-old girl who had come from her village to live in the Adivasi hostel in the city to again appear for her 12th exam. She wanted to be a doctor. I have no doubt in mind that all these people would have made actually exemplary professionals and would have helped society. So it's a huge loss for our society that they were humiliated in such a manner that they ultimately chose death over life. What happened to their tormentors? Not much. Delta's rapist was actually given a jail sentence, but he's out on bail. Tormentors who actually, so she was a doctor. Case has very small, small details, right? They used to, in a room full of female doctors, others would make her sleep on a gadda down while rest of them had beds. And when they came back from the bathroom, they would walk on top of her with their wet feet. This would happen all the time. This is a very simple thing. We would think, is this something for which you would commit suicide? But this is a very simple thing. But I wonder how these people, five, six women who lived with her, did this all the time? What did they have against her? So how do you humiliate someone day in and day out and you actually live with yourself as a human? It's not just an individual. It's an institution which does not take into account these kind of issues, which seems small because it's happening to someone else and allows someone to be pushed to that extent. So I feel that these three examples could actually show us how institutions are allowing. There is an institutional humiliation happens through partaking of students, professors, and administration. All three are part of this. Thank you so much for that, Professor. I think Rohit Vemula's suicide also changed the contemporary caste discourse and reminded us most importantly that we are made of stardust. 
coming back to what you said about how even nothing really was done about the oppressors in this case do you think the legal system including the legal education including the judicial system has also internalized casteism to some extent you know i have done an article on the uttarakhand reservation judgment while doing research there i realized that if you look at the judges in india or the grand juries in india there are very few women and no dalits if you look at the judicial system or the court systems there are very few minority communities including dalits and women so dalits and women both are very underrepresented casteism obviously gets internalized because a person who comes from a certain kind of positionality does not tend to wear some other shoes and look at the world even if you are a judge your world view is shaped by your positionality positionality is the position in society that you actually inhabit and that makes you wear a certain kind of lens to view the world so the world looks a certain way when you are an upper caste or lower caste or muslim or hindu and intersections of all of these identities so if all the judges are going to be male upper caste then how do you think the dispensation of justice going to be definitely in one of your papers you've placed an emphasis on law schools and legal education as an alternative space to address casteism in institutional apparatuses why do you think so do law schools train their students to become instruments of social justice or do they fall in compliance with the already existing oppressive systems nearly 30 years back duncan kennedy a critical legal theorist in america wrote about law schools the name of the article is training for hierarchy and he said that law students are being trained for future hierarchies within the legal professions that they will follow so they are being shown in the law school how law professor is always a white male how the law secretaries are white females there are very little number of black people men or women and all of this trains them to understand and accept the world of race and gender as it would be in the legal profession so they are trained for the real life quote unquote in the law schools so they are not being taught to challenge anything in fact actively law schools are supposed to train them in future hierarchies with that proviso then i will say that obviously then law students are not supposed to be trained for social justice but it so happens that all the law schools now the premier law schools in india have a lot of emphasis on social justice material there are a lot of readings that we do on social justice we teach human rights we teach caste we teach gender we teach environmental science and we try to sow the seed of uh, discontent around the status quo and there is a lot of questioning as people are young they are always supposed to question capitalism property hierarchies male dominance which law students do but at the end of the day they are wanting jobs that pay and the successful lawyer is the one who gets the most number of most paid cases the successful law student is the one who gets marks but also who makes the contract which is the highest 
it's like the highest bidder kind of thing so it gets judged by the money rather than obviously knowledge of law or what kind of good you can do or change you can bring in society in some way it is an institution like any other in our society that must maintain status quo yet it's an institution that deals with the young and the restless so a lot of challenge and lot of churning happens in the law schools that makes it a very interesting alternative space i like the word alternative space you mentioned how law school seed the discontent among young and the restless and how they also expose students to these multiple identity aspects the dynamics of it do you think caste awareness in particular is important within the framework of legal education why is caste worthy of discussion if you look at indian society caste should be viewed as the base because here it's not just class it is not just money or the property that people hold but dignity entitlement respect comes from someone's caste so in a society where an mp who's dalit has to sit on the floor and carry his own cup for drinking chai in a locality where he is visiting upper caste constituents we understand that it's not just class status but also caste status that brings respect enfranchisement and dignity so hence caste is in india not merely worthy of discussion but the basic of understanding society so is gender to my view this is an intersection caste and gender that is the prism through which we may view indian society in the most appropriate or truest way and if this is the reality of indian society law in indian society must view caste otherwise a caste blind law just as a gender blind law or class blind law becomes just an apparatus of legal order rather than justice when we are doing legal education towards young students we have to make them aware of how caste operates and how law responds to it thank you so much professor for that i'm just going to pull up some statistics according to a report by increasing diversity by increasing access 85% of students who made it to the prestigious national law universities nlus were hindus and of them more than 30% belong to brahmin community that is the dominant hindu caste so how does one broach the subject of caste privileges the discussion on caste in a law school that is dominated by upper castes interesting that you ask this so if it's 30% brahmin then there would be several more percent of other two upper castes so if we go by the first three varnas which is actually much less than 50% of the indian population but populates far more percentage of educational sector and we knew know this and yet reservation is such a contested topic that it becomes very unfair that it is taking away seats from upper caste all of this uh, drama continues outside but if you ask me about the prestigious law schools it is interesting because i teach in jindal global law school when i'm teaching caste and gender i say to my students that we are actually the quota people 
because you want to call someone else quota person but this is a, a paid law school so who can afford this obviously you don't afford it your father mother does and so by sheer accident of birth are you actually here so who is the quota person here this is the quota of people who could not actually get into things but can get admissions through money and that means you are the quota students of law schools what can you say about reservation it will be very funny if you said anything and so it becomes interesting to raise in the dominant hindu caste kind of thing to raise questions but as i said they are young and restless at that age you want more than other things justice and change and equality i have a great faith in trying to do this at the level of law school at the level of any educational institution that's very interesting you said about how we need to catch people at this particular age but i would want to probe a bit more in terms of the curriculum in law schools how is caste is it a subject or a subset in other papers or is there a fleeting mention of caste do you think the current pedagogies that are applied in law schools in terms of the curriculum the teaching styles the readings that are given are brahmanical how do you think ideally caste should be discussed in the classroom caste is taught very fleetingly in some ways because we have very small number of subjects that are caste subjects so we have now in jindal i think jindal may be jindal law school may be amongst the exceptional ones in which we have nearly four five particular subjects being taught which are all electives i teach caste gender so one is elective teaching where it's direct teaching of caste one is within the mainstream courses any course like human rights property family law constitution obviously where caste is being taught by many of my colleagues and that makes it far more than what generally gets taught in the law schools i think it should be taught in all the mainstream subjects as something which is a matter of hierarchy and justice and operation so wherever there is a question of hierarchies and that can be done in any subject i think contract law taught by black uh, race theorists race legal theorists when they started teaching contract law in the us they started bringing about the cases of contract with african slaves or contracts on african slaves as the asset so they tried to teach simple straightforward contract law through the cases in slavery we can do the same thing if we are teaching property law who is the propertyed class in india and who's the non propertyed class if you are doing the cases around environment who are the people who are going to disadvantage and lose their clean water and air around the factory of uh, nuclear uh, weapons simple things which are the matter of law and justice are all actually steeped deeply into caste class and gender we just have to use the lens or change our lens a little bit to incorporate all of this into the mainstream teaching of law that's very important thank you for saying that out loud coming back to what we have placed an emphasis on throughout this conversation the intersection of gender and caste are caste based atrocities and crimes especially cases of sexual violence against dalit women taught in the curriculum 
And from this vantage point, how does legal education address intersectionality? Or is there a more neutral, positivist approach whereby the socio-political context is not given much weightage? I think people do teach, some colleagues are teaching constitution and they do take the cases from Mathura rape case in the 1981 to Kherlanji rape case in 2006. They are looking at something like that. That is a whole millage of cases from 80s to 2000s. That makes it a sociological journey as well as the journey of justice or not really status quo of the legal order in terms of Dalit women. And that tells us that it's not just Dalit women who haven't, whose position has not bettered, but a society at large that is stagnant or legal system that is stagnant. If we have the same kind of case 30 years down the line, and if we still have judges that give similar kind of order, say in Bhauri Devi case or in Kherlanji case, when so much more material on caste, gender, on sexual assault is available, and if the judges are giving the same kind of uh, judgments, that they feel it's neither sexual nor is it caste, it's not gendered, it's not caste, then what is it? It's like no one killed Jessica. You wonder whether as a society we have moved at all. The matter is not of Dalit women, but this poor uh, society that seems to be so stagnant. Thank you for answering that, Professor. You've also done a survey of three law schools in Delhi, the National Law University, Delhi, Jamia Milia Islamia, and Jindal Global University, your own law school. For understanding caste in legal education, I'm also wondering if the demographics of these schools are different. Why have you chosen these three schools and whether there have been any significant difference in how caste is perceived by students from these different universities? So all these three are in NCR. One is a private law school, which is the gender law school. One is a semi-private, which is National Law University which is government and private, and Jamia Milia Islamia, which is a public law school. So three different types of law schools are chosen so that different index of students can be studied. And three different types of students in terms of their socio-political background, their economic background, because the fees they pay differ hugely in three different spaces. And their class caste dynamic is different. And so while they are from similar locations, they are from totally different political social locations. You ask if there is a significant difference in how caste is perceived. So I was trying to ask them what they have learned from the law school, not whether they know themselves. But yeah, that also was the question. Very little was being taught of caste in law schools, all law schools. In one place, there was neither caste nor gender. In one place, there was gender in something and caste in something else, I think in poverty and property, but as part of class rather than caste separately. In all, I realized to my dismay that the sociological understanding of caste that we ought to give to our law students so that when they become lawyers, they are able to do some justice work, is not given to them. Why did we start five-year law school? The impetus came from a thought that they should together learn all the sociological or social sciences subjects, history, sociology, 
philosophy, anthropology before they get into the hardcore mainstream law subjects. And if we are supposed to teach them in all of this in the first two years of their law school, we have in a way failed to teach this if we haven't taught them caste and gender because they are the two main axes of oppression. So without that, how do you teach anything? What is history without these two axes? We have to teach history of common people. What were women of that era doing? What were the working people doing? What were the dasis of these queens doing? What were their jobs? What were their lives? What were their love lives? Were they allowed to get married? Were they allowed to have children? All of these are questions of history as they are of sociology as they are of anthropology. So we can't teach all of these subjects without the axis of gender caste class. And so when we are teaching our students law and not teaching all of the sociological understanding of our world, we fail in making all-rounded good lawyers and we make then clones of corporate law, which then go and earn money. It is all a bit sad. You mentioned how even the... Teaching at Jiddal had become very intersectional in a way. Caste was being taught a lot more than other law schools in India. Your elective class of caste, gender and law also has done a survey on contemporary caste practices. Could you share some of the findings from that? Most interesting findings came out of those surveys. My students told me things that were shocking to me and I love to be shocked by my students. One finding was that when they looked at Jindal itself, they realized that the Sodexo, which is a French company, and we assume it's going to be castless, was employing people to do kitchen work, food-related work, and they were all upper caste from clean caste, right? The touchable caste. The untouchable and lower caste were employed to do what they call the maintenance and cleaning work. So cleaning the bathrooms, cleaning the corridors, etc. was given to these people. So you had clear distinction of who gets employed in what department of Sodexo. The Sodexo laundry at that time employed everyone that was from Dhobi caste. So washermen, washerwomen caste came to be employed in the laundry of a very global looking space. We could not have imagined this. They came up with a lot of questions around the world. They asked about women in the film industry who are dark. And they realized that no one could actually tell even three names of dark women in the film industry. Or they could not find anyone to tell the heroes of like Dalit heroes or tribal heroes. Not just heroes, but in the industry, but heroes like Do you know anyone from a tribal background who has done anything? Do you know any names? They asked their own families that they assumed were very modern, upper class, modern families living in Delhi and Bombay who refused to let their children marry anyone from their own caste. It was very interesting for me to find out that people who are nearly my age are thinking all this. And I thought the world had actually traveled to the future. Although you did mention a bit about it, but I'll still want to probe a bit more here. Coming back to the lack of representation in law schools, in the long run, it also impacts the citizenry's access to justice. That is to say, it restricts the judiciary from becoming diverse. And at the same time, the caste positionality of, say, lawyers, judges is very central to their pronouncement of justice. How does one break this cycle? Can we break this cycle? Statistics that you gave from IDIA survey 
is actually coming from an organization that started to break this cycle. IDI was increasing diversity by increasing access. Shamnath Bashir tried to bring about change by giving in access, trying to get students into law schools, trying to mentor them through their years in law school and make lawyers out of marginalized communities from disabled background, from gay, lesbian background. They created diversity in the legal profession or they tried to. And I have a belief that is the only way to do any kind of change in this because when you have lawyers of your own identity, they will take your cases. They will put effort in trying to do the cases. And as it grows in number, then change will come. But government and law schools both have the responsibility of making it possible for students who come from the backgrounds which have earlier not got education, who are first-time learners in their families and communities, to make it easy. Though, as we saw in your humiliation question, that that is made most difficult. And so it's a vicious cycle that remains hard to break. Definitely. To sum up what you've been saying is that there is systematic gatekeeping which has to be breaked. And there have been innovations in this front, such as IDI, as you mentioned. But within the law schools, is there any discourse? Is there any change happening within the law schools? And what is the way forward from here? Law schools, like all other universities, are full of leftists who try to push a different political agenda on students. It has its merits, but it also has its demerits. If we are only by thought leftist and we actually do nothing which changes our situation, we don't show our students or our children by action that change is possible, then talk remains just that and no real change is possible. In fact, we disappoint the younger generation by doing a lot of talk and no action. I have mixed feeling towards the changes by a lot of academic institutions and leftist academics or feminist academics within organizations where we are not able to bring in the learnings of feminism or leftism into our behavior. And we go by the same cycles of power of trying to get promotions. We don't try to change the culture of law schools by pushing our political behavior, by changing ourselves, then culture does not change, only the talk remains. I feel there is a lot that can be done and is being done, but there is far more action needed than talk. Thank you so much, Professor, for taking out time for us today. And thank you for the work that you are doing to break this cycle at your own university, in your own class. Inviting me, Muda. And thank you to belong. If you found this podcast interesting, download our mobile app Unother, spelled U-N-O-T-H-E-R, for more conversations and literature on intersectional inclusion. If you would like to connect with intersectional experts, visit Belong Circle, a platform that makes it easy for a wide range of organizations and individuals to be intersectional in their work. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for more.